0: Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to uh, this week's episode of the Keep Moving Forward podcast. I am your host, Sergeant First Class Retired Ronald Smith. This week's guest is Miss Sharon Young, who is actually a doctor with a PhD, who is uh, on staff at Western Connecticut State University. And we are going to have a discussion about veteranism. And don't worry if you don't know what that means, because I didn't know what it means before I talked to her. So I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Young and uh, let her introduce herself and kind of get into the conversation this week.
1: Thanks. Um, it's actually veteranness.
0: Okay. Uh, we-
1: <laughs> because I don't know how to talk about veteranism, because I don't know what that is either.
0: <laughs> that makes two of us. Veteranism. <laughs> I was talking to one of my other friends about that today, um, and he's uh, still in the reserves and he's got his PhD and he was like doing a presentation actually, ironically on care of veterans. And he's like, Oh, I had a slide on that topic today. And I was like, yeah, you no, know, it's, I think it needs to be talked about.
1: Yeah. The, the research that I've done, uh, it's published in the journal of veteran studies and the whole research project started because I was running an online group of veterans during covid and one of the veterans in the group said, "How do I hide my veteranness at work?" And I wear two hats. Uh, one is a clinical social worker, and the other hat is a researcher and professor. And so that got my—I uh, put on my researcher hat, and I thought, <laughs> "Wow, what do they mean by veteranness?" And so uh, that kind of led to a discussion, which then led to the research. Um, a lot of the work that I've done in research and also in practice, is destigmatizing the idea of veterans and the qualities that veterans have. And a lot of times when people think about veterans and whatever qualities they bring, oftentimes they'll think of pathological characteristics like PTSD or jumpy or aggressive, or a lot of negative sort of stereotypes come to mind in um, a lot of civilian heads. And I really wanted to spend a lot of time examining what veterans themselves think are the qualities that they have that really bring them together as a culture, so to speak. And so that's the, the results of, of, uh, the study starting.
0: Okay. And, um, what kind of things did you discover through that? Cause I get the whole, like, how do I have my veteranists because, you know, we, we are taught to operate in a different way than, the civilian population, and a lot of that is because of how what our jobs are and what we do, but what were some of the other characteristics that you discovered when you were conducting your research?
1: So the, the the way we conducted the research is we used a qualitative uh, research method, um, which has a very long name, but I don't need to talk about it. <laughs> but, um, But basically, we interviewed veterans and asked them very specific questions so that they would talk about their experiences in the civilian world as veterans. And we interviewed veterans with combat experience and veterans with non-combat experience. We interviewed um, veterans from different branches of service and also uh, veterans that are still uh, attached to guard reserve units and ones that have completely disconnected from their military service. And uh, we found that there was five themes that we uncovered through these conversations. And so we took the transcripts from these hour, hour and a half interviews and boiled it down to five basic themes. And so I can go one by one of the themes, or you can ask me questions.
0: Yeah, was, uh, by all means, because I'm interested to find out what you discovered as well. <laughs> OK.
1: Um, so the first one is super obvious, which is the sense of camaraderie. Um, the veterans in our study really um, were very wistful when they talked about the camaraderie they had in the military and how they really miss it, particularly in civilian workspaces and with civilian friendships. Um, a lot of veterans have trouble, particularly when they first transition out of military service into the civilian world, they have trouble connecting with other people because they they, they don't have that same relationship that they had with people in the military. And anecdotally, I can speak about my clinical work with veterans in that oftentimes when I'm meeting with a veteran um, and they're struggling with issues with their wives, um, I will encourage them to have a conversation uh, with their spouses and say, you know, for some people, the most intense and connected relationship they'll ever have is with whoever they served with and not necessarily with a spouse. And that's sometimes difficult for spouses to understand um, with transitioning veterans. So that sense of camaraderie is different than it is in the civilian world. And a lot of times veterans have a hard time finding that sense of camaraderie. And we all know camaraderie comes from that, that relationship you have where your survival is, is really uh, based on the relationships you have with others. And it, it's not like that in the civilian world. And that sense that I got from the from the men and women in my study was that the relationships they had, they may they may deploy with someone that they don't really like, that they don't have the same political views with, that they may not like like their worldview or whatever it is. They they may not hang together um, in any other circumstance, but they they relied on them when they go out. Uh, or they relied on them when they were, you know, on the uh, on a mission or wherever they were. They knew they could rely on them no matter what. And they could be annoying people, or they could be people that are are difficult to spend time with. But no matter what, they knew that they could they could rest their life in their hands. And that level of camaraderie is virtually impossible in the civilian world to find. And there's a sense of longing for that camaraderie.
0: Yeah, no, I I completely can see where that is, and I can understand it, because, yeah, um, having been someone that's made the transition over from military to civilian life, it is very different, and there are things that you kind of expect in military life um, that you just don't get in civilian life, especially when it comes to, like, trying to come together for a a unified goal or trying to make something difficult happen, it's there's a lot of different aspects you have to consider on the civilian side than you do on the military side. It's not just everybody, you know, let's just bring it together and kind of make it happen. It's a lot of different little things that have to be considered before you can actually do that on the civilian side and playing the games and knowing what you got to do and all the other stuff that makes it very, very different. So I can see how a lot of the veterans you talk to just don't experience that same level of camaraderie because a lot of times it's, it's just not there.
1: Yeah. And and it, it really, it's that having that trust and that sense of safety around other people that is hard to find in the civilian world. And a lot of times um, veterans will experience a loneliness that, you know, that they're out there on their own, particularly when you're talking about Guard and Reserve troops who um, they they may deploy, and then they come back, and then they're scattered all around whatever state they're from. And um, it's not like living on a base where you you know go out on deployment, you come back, and you're still on base, and maybe your spouses or people you're in a relationship with are connected. For for garden reserves, uh, it's so much harder, and that sense of loneliness is is really profound and isolating.
0: Now, um, what was the next aspect of the of the five characteristics so we got camaraderie is number one what was number two
1: so then the second one was one that we actually named after a quote from one of the veterans that was in the study and it's called stranger in a strange land um and that's coming back to the civilian world you feel like you never quite fit Like there's something different about the way you operate and the way that you communicate and the way that you understand things that is just different in the civilian world. So we saw this in civilian workplaces and even just simple things like the way that you can speak to somebody in the military, you can't speak to people that way in the civilian world without repercussions. Um, When you joke about things in the military, you know, you were a medic, I can imagine the degree of dark humor you had to use in order to manage the day-to-day experiences you had, you can't necessarily use that in a civilian workplace. And so that's when I think about the veteran who said, how do I hide my veteranness?" It's that sense of of he felt different than civilians that were around him. Um, And that goes two ways where he felt like he was different and he had to hold back. He had to hold who he was back and had like this impression that other people were judging him based on what stereotypes they have on on him being a veteran. So he described people as walking around on eggshells around him because they had this view of of him being maybe dangerous or weapon carrying or whatever it is, the stereotypes that, that they might have or he might perceive that they have. Um, so not only does the veteran themselves and the study indicate that they don't feel connected, uh, to the civilian world, they may also be perceiving civilians, perceiving them as being different.
0: Yeah. And I can see that. And I think that has to deal with, we live in a, today, in an age in America where people don't there's a pretty good chance. Well, let me rephrase this. Cause I, it's kind of hard to say, and I know what I'm trying to say, but it doesn't always come out that way, especially after being at work. Um, but there's the idea of like, Oh, those guys went off and served or those people went off and served and very few people have any firsthand knowledge of veterans anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like when I grew up, I'm obviously a bit older, but when I was a kid, My dad was a vet, which wasn't necessarily the norm, but my dad was Vietnam generation. So chances are, if you're Generation X or older, you probably knew someone, either an uncle or someone in your family had probably been a vet. But when it came to like my grandfather was a vet, my dad's uncles were all vets because they were all World War II generation and Korea. And back then, it was more than likely that you served. So it's like. It's, it was easier at one point to count the number of men in my family that hadn't served than it was that had. Mm-hmm. And in today's society, we have, what, 370 million people in the country and 1.1 1. 1 million of them are wearing a uniform. Yeah, And so it's very, very different. And there's not a lot of first hand connectedness for veterans. And I think A lot of it, too, is that a lot of veterans that came home from Vietnam never talked about their experience to where people never even knew they were veterans. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. And so the next uh, aspect of veteranness is is a military habitus. Um, One of the veterans that I know makes fun of me for saying the word habitus because it's such a Nerdy word.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's where we're like, oh pulling well, out the big words, the rest of us can't understand <laughs> what's going on.
1: Yeah. So that's my nerdy contribution because I am a nerd. And so uh military habitus is really a description of habits and mores and and um and ways of going about your the things you do every day in a military way. Um and so the military is a total institution. So what that means is that you, you become engulfed in it and it, it directs every little aspect of what you do. And they do it so completely that when you leave the institution, you still have echoes and traces and reveries of, of that time in the service that sometimes you may notice and sometimes you don't. And so, some of those military habitus <laughs> are, are really helpful because um, employers appreciate um, the timeliness, the, the, the mission-driven uh, sense that a lot of military veterans have, their ability to really dig in and get something done, um, their uh, steadfastness. There's so many excellent qualities that come from the military that, that are imbued in veterans. And so that is part of the habitus. And when people that are civilians, they don't understand the very nature of of military culture, they only look at the negative stereotypes instead of those amazing qualities that veterans bring to the workforce every single day. And so we talk in the study about the military habitus, which is the the things that allow you to um, manage things um, when other people can't. One of the... um, the gentleman in the study, he uh, talked about how he was overseas um, in, in his master's program and somebody got hit by a car and all the civilians around him just stood there and looked at the person on the ground. And he's looking at them like, I can't believe you're not doing something. And so he like goes in and he like points to someone and says, you know, call emergency services. And he's like making sure that person is safe. And um, so the military Teaches you how to respond and to take action and to take leadership roles, and part of the the taking the leadership is to fake it till you make it. Mm. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so, in the study, uh, one of the um, one of the participants said that he was taught that rule number one is to look cool, and rule number two is to know what you're doing, and number three is if you can't follow rule number two.
0: Follow rule number one. <laughs> yeah, no. um, Yeah. I can <laughs> I can see that because it's not always what you're doing, but if you're making it look good and it's like, I know like there's certain things that you would just be like, it ain't stupid if it works. Yes. And there's times where you're just like, I got no idea, but I'm just going to keep throwing the kitchen sink at it until I figure mm-hmm. out a way to make it, make it happen. And, and I and think that doing that's a- that's something that is unique amongst veterans, too. It's, there's not really a thing where you're just going to be like, screw it, I don't know, and you're just going to stop. It's, okay, well, we've tried A through Z. How many more things can we try before we run out of stuff, before we, we have to stop trying?
1: Right. And, and to do all of that in a very calm and focused way, that's something that the military really uh, trains you from day one. A boot camp is to handle that stress and pressure and to handle it like with a, a centered um, cognitive focus. And that's training that is so valuable. And we really wanted to highlight that as part of um, what the veterans in our study described is this ability to manage things when other people who are not trained in the military don't have that ability.
0: Yeah, no, um, controlling the chaos or as they used to yell at us, I don't even remember how many times we just had drill surgeons that would just go, "Remember, privates, slow is smooth and smooth is fast. And you're just like, <laughs> I have no idea what the hell you're talking about, but okay. Cause I'm just sitting here polishing my boots, which was like yeah. the 45 minute period of every day we weren't going to get fucked with that was <laughs> all we looked forward to it was that. And if you had a piece of mail, you might get some mail at that point, but that was about it. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I don't know. What I, I, mean. I
1: have vicariously like picked up some of that. Yeah.
0: No, And it's like when you get farther on, you understand it. It's like you can get worked up and try to move at the speed of things are going. But what you'll find is if you can actually kind of slow yourself down and focus on what it is that you need to do the next step and make sure that you're doing it correctly, you'll actually find that you're moving faster than someone that isn't able to slow down their thoughts and is trying to do it all at once. And it's like, no, you can only do one thing at a time. So you might as well make sure what you're doing, you're doing correctly and you'll find that you're, you're looking at it and you're like, okay, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And it's like, I've got this, 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 and this to go. And it's very true. You do kind of bring it on. It's also kind of a double-edged sword because it's also one of the, I guess the hallmarks of like when I've been through therapy for PTSD and other things, it's like, they're like, yeah, you tend to find yourself at your best when things are at their worst and they're like, yeah. A lot of times with PTSD, that's exactly how, because you got so used to functioning that way that that's kind of where you are you feel most comfortable at. It's almost, it's a good treat, but it's almost sad in some ways because there's a point where like, that's about the only way you know how to operate. It mm-hmm. becomes detrimental to you in some ways.
1: Yeah. And I think that, that there's always that double-edged sword of military experience, right? Because you've learned how to, to manage, like drinking out of a fire hose, sort of experiences where it's overwhelming, and there's so much stuff, and you you've learned how to adapt and to manage it. And you know, everybody that I know that's been in in infantry has had to sit in a gas chamber and take that mask off. Um, so that's training that becomes part of who you are, and it allows you to to manage really challenging situations. Um, and the double edged sword is. Uh, that maybe some of your uh, family members or your coworkers or your civilian friend group, they don't have that ability. And and it may be frustrating for a veteran to when other people don't keep their head on their shoulders, manage difficult situations, it's frustrating. Um, Particularly when you're acting in a team situation where you're trying to do a work team and, and people are panicking and you're like, okay, yeah. We can manage this. This is not the end of the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's
0: amazing when you see it because it does happen. And I'm just like, okay, chicken little, go have fun. Um <laughs> we'll let you run around until you realize it's really not that bad. And and I've kind of learned that I just don't engage with those people like you've got to learn what that is that's going on with them to where, you know, if there actually is a situation you got to get involved with, or if it's just them kind of doing their initial, Oh my God, look at the schedule. And then when you sit down and look at the schedule, you're like, it's five total appointments. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll be okay.
1: And you know, I, I don't want to discount the fact that part of the the gift that the military gives people is um, exposure to trauma Um, And that in and of itself can be really challenging. Um, So people, uh, obviously in my clinical practice, I see people with PTSD, um, heightened anxiety, um, all the parts of PTSD that, you know, can ebb and flow throughout your life. Um, And also moral injury, um, which I think is something that a lot of vets may not think about on a daily basis, but it's something that, you know, you treat differently than PTSD, but it's something that's pretty significant that kind of sticks with you for a long time. But I like to um, always talk to veterans about situational awareness Um, because, because in PTSD, there's hypervigilance and then in the military, there's situational awareness. And I think there's a delineating line between those two. And it's important for veterans to really think about when you go to the mall, so malls have that two-story situation and you're at the lower level of the mall. So what, what do you think that's going to be doing walking into the mall?
0: Um, well, it really kind of depends on who you are and what your experiences are. But you can have many, many different thoughts when you're walking into the mall. Because most of the entrances I've ever walked into Usually there's a solid line or store above most of the main entrances or you enter in through a big store. And then when you get out of that big store, there's not always the continuous upper level. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it comes down. But yeah, no, if you're truly situationally aware in the truest form, you are looking for all your areas of cover, your hard points that you can get behind, What and if somebody's coming at me from whatever direction it might be, you're looking at lanes of fire. You're understanding where you can go, where your quickest reaction time is, where your closest exit is to, or if can you, are you near a big enough store that you can get into it and get out of the mall completely through that exit versus what's going on at other places and other things. And yeah, no, there's a, it's like you can get behind that you can get behind this that's not going to do anything cuz it's a piece of plastic that's probably got nothing in it that's going to stop it and it's like one of my friends had a great thing when we were doing uh just like hip pocket training and he was like does everybody understand the difference between cover and concealment hmm. and they were like eh. and it's like okay let me put this into real simple terms and he picked up like a branch he goes this is cover He picks up a rock and he goes, or no, he goes, this is concealment. He picked up a rock and he goes, this is cover. Anybody understand the difference? And it's like, yes. Okay. Cover is going to stop a bullet. Concealment's not. And so you need to find cover. And that's where the biggest thing and the biggest difference is, is that most people will hear something and they'll freeze and try to figure it out. If I'm hearing something, it's like, okay, where did it come from? How far away was it? And how what direction do I need to go in order to get either behind something or get out of the way of something?
1: Right. So every veteran that I've ever talked to has that same mall experience. Like and I'm sure every veteran that you've talked to could, if you ask them about the mall or any other, of those big box stores, particularly the ones that have two levels, um, you'll, you'll hear that. Um, and for some people, movie theaters are challenging the, the way I like to approach it is that the military has trained you to be situationally aware because in your head you know that there's danger possible and there's nothing wrong with being situationally aware because you've been trained to do it and it's a smart thing to do and it's safe. The difference between situation awareness and hyper vigilance is if you're if your gut and your emotions are getting to a level that is discomfortable, discomfortable, uncomfortable, we're stopping. Yeah, we're
0: just making up for it as we go <laughs> along.
1: <laughs> so, if if your level of anxiety or cortisol is is zooming around at such a level that going to those places is, is untenable or so uncomfortable that you you sit in the parking lot and wait for someone else to come back for you, that's where you're you're getting into that. Um, range of where you can, you know, figure out how to access some care or some training or whatever it is to minimize that. But there's nothing wrong with having situational awareness because that's part of your military habitus. I had to say it one more time.
0: (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Especially after (laughs) making up another word that I can't even remember what it was. I'm like, yeah. (laughs) All right. So that's three, right? So we got two more to go. Yeah. All right. What's number
1: four? Okay, we're all in school today. So the next one, I have to say as a civilian. This one surprised me that it came up with every single participant in the study. I usually when you're doing a study and you've been trained in, you know, a, a, a topic, you, under, you you know what to expect. This is one of the ones I didn't expect, which is veterans worldview. All of the veterans in the study had a different worldview than the majority of civilians that they knew. And that worldview is that I'll just I'll read you a quote because I think it's the best way to uh, describe it. I find that the line between death and destruction and the world we live in is a lot thinner than people realize. So this is the perception that when someone has deployed to any sort of area where there's been combat, and you see civilians who are um, coming in and out of destruction and neighborhoods that have been raised, and, um, and the interaction that, that combat veterans have had with civilian communities they realized that at some point they were living in a, in a calm, regular sort of life. And then all of a sudden everything's turned upside down. And a lot of veterans talked about that in a study where number one, that they do feel like things could just flip on a dime and you go from normal to destruction at any time. And the other thing is that they, are frustrated with the um, perspective of people in America or the Western world that they really take for granted of all of the safety and convenience and opportunities that we have here that are just not in other places that they've been.
0: Yeah, no, um, I think like the term the ugly American exists for a very real reason because Americans have this preconceived notion that no matter where they go in the world, it's going to operate similar than it does to America. And it's like, that could not be further from the truth. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that, you know, the majority of people you'll meet in this world are going to be good people. They're not going to be out to try and do any harm to anybody or anything like that. But once you're out and this is like, you see it with like people from rural areas going to the big city. Um, if you're not used to that type of environment, you don't know what to look for to be aware of when danger might be presenting itself. And I do think that even in this country, we live in a veil, and you hear it a lot with like, um, political talk of people that like, Oh, well, that will never happen here. And they just mm-hmm. kind of minimize what's going on in the political world today. And I'm like, I honestly see 2024 is probably one of the most important elections that, this country may have ever had because I know there's one group that if they take power again, the constitution as we know it is going to end. And that, if that doesn't scare you, I don't know what, what, what does.
1: Yeah. Because
0: That's creating a situation that most Americans would flip overnight and it's like, Oh, well, they're just doing it to those people. Yeah. But if they start with those people, eventually they're going to get to you. And it's a weird... I think
1: parents have that perspective too that um that things can go south and I think it's on the top of their mind and it's not on everybody's top of their mind
0: yeah I for me, the really big wake-up call was January 6th because hmm. when you saw that, if that didn't affect you way deep down inside and just go, what the hell's going on um, Yeah, I don't know what would ever wake people up to that because that was my personal thought. Like, someone asked me about it, and I was like, I think every single person that went inside the Capitol building that day should have been arrested on domestic terrorism and should be sitting in a cell in Gitmo right now. And that's my personal thing because they forcibly tried to stop the peaceful transition of power inside this country. And anybody associated with it, I think, should be arrested and thrown in jail regardless of what their position is or what part of the government they work for. Cause to me, that was the most dangerous thing that's ever, I mean, almost 300 and some odd years. And we had never had a non-peaceful transition of power between presidents in this country until that day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it's for me, like as, as a social worker, we have our political side and then we also have our, you know, working with individual side and, you know, I try to really drill down and think about the impacts that that veteran worldview of like that, the ability of of serious danger and disruption that could happen. Um, And I think about a lot of, um, you know, either veterans I know through organizations or from my clinical caseload, that a lot of them have uh, bunkers uh, where they have a food supply, they have weapons and um, i always joke about how there always comes to some point in my relationship with a veteran where they say your family is welcome to come to my bunker <laughs> shit go down and i'm always like thanks i've had prior offers <laughs> so, but um but yeah you know my dad uh, is also a, was also a member of the military and uh, i grew up um feeling that urgency in my family to to be protected. And I think that's, you know, if you are, if you spent time on a FOB or, you know, anywhere in um, a war zone, you don't go anywhere without your weapon, right? So you come home to the civilian world, you feel a little naked without your weapon. And um, the idea of like not having weapons in your home for some dangerous situation may seem like a, a a safety alarm for for veterans um and i like to talk about this particularly with spouses who don't maybe understand like well you've done all that stuff and now we can live here where it's peaceful and quiet but that veteran world view is that maybe right now it's peaceful and quiet but you never know
0: yeah and i think it kind of what was it the old uh Secretary of Defense and the old uh, Marine Corps Commandant, George Mattis, when he had a quote, it was like, be calm and respectful to everybody you meet, but also have a plan to kill each one of them. <laughs> and that's kind of the the veteran worldview. It's like, no, we'll be some of the nicest people in the world. But yeah, the moment you present a danger, we, we're not going to tolerate it, especially if you're coming after people that we love. Yes and or people that we're responsible for or anything like that because i know my job was always to look out for my soldiers and do the best i could to make sure that they were getting taken care of and to have somebody threaten that never never really went well and usually it was like you would do whatever you had to do in order to make sure your soldiers were getting taken care of
1: yeah and so thinking about like the civilian perspective on this like You know, if if you're at a a party and you're with your civilian friends and you mention the fact that you've got, you know, this many guns with this much ammo and this is your food store and this is how you're going to filter your water. They may look at you a little funny. Like, why would why would you do that? But people will see that as pathological. And to me, I see that that's you've been trained and you witness that in the world. And so you're responding from what your experiences are. So for me, it's not pathological. And I think it's important for veterans to realize that a lot of their veteranness is not based <laughs> on pathology. It's based on their experience and their training.
0: Yeah, no, because I mean, it can like I've got freeze dried food in the garage. I know I've got my weapons upstairs. I know roughly about how many rounds of ammunition I've got for different types of different weapons that I can do different things. And I'm like, there's enough rabbits around my neighborhood that I could probably live for easily a few months before I really started putting a dent in the population.
1: Right. And, and you then, see how you thought about all these things? <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, I can't
0: have, but I see like 15 of them when I go for a run, it's like they're everywhere. My, drives my dogs nuts. Cause if I'm taking them out for a walk and they see a rabbit, it's all over. And I'm like, Nope. Okay. We're going home. Um, but I'm,
1: as a civilian, <laughs> if I see a rabbit, I'm not like I'm not like oh a potential food source. I'm like,
0: oh, so cute. <laughs> uh, uh, potential food source. It's like uh, it was a funny because I was over at a friend's house yesterday and we were at, um having a barbecue, and he's like, for a family of four, I figured it out. He's like, rotational planting, you need about four acres, and you can feed a family of four all year long. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah. Mine was looking for. 85 was the last piece of land I looked at and he was like, why And I go? Cause I want enough run up to where I've got my marks out and everything else. In case somebody's coming up the road, I know what my range is, where I'm at, and how many adjustments I got to make on what I'm doing. And it was like, he's just like, yeah. And yeah, no, we do have, we definitely do have our quirks that other people don't have. And that's even if we're really well adjusted. So (laughs) it's yeah. 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 All right. So what's number five?
1: Okay. So the last one is a very, um, it's a transformation, which is when you start, when you walk out of, you got your DD, DD-214 in hand. (laughs) and you walk out to the civilian world, that's when you will begin your transition, your transformation into civilian world. And everybody does it differently and everybody does it at different speeds. And you'll see people that really struggle with transforming into that veteran, that veteran identity compared to the military identity. And so a lot of people in the study talked about how that first couple of years was really challenging because they just didn't know what to do with themselves. After spending years of somebody telling them what to do, where to, where to eat, what to wear, when to be there, there's that sense of, of of loss and mission loss. I see a lot of mission loss in veterans, um, and so that transformation happens. Um, and veterans need to have some sort of mission to tend to in order to successfully transform into their their veteran slash civilian identity.
0: Yeah. No, well, I'm just. Yeah. Cause you said we need some sort of mission and I know taking off the uniform is weird, even if you know it's coming. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think one of the biggest things is, is that, you know, in the military, you've always got a purpose. You, you kind of always, almost always know what it is. Sometimes you don't know why what you're doing right now fulfills it in any way, shape or form, but there's always kind of that overriding purpose of what your job is, what we're supposed to do, what we're meant to go do. when we go, and do our jobs but it's not something you always have in the civilian world like very rarely is there a uniform purpose in an organization to where everybody knows what the purpose of the organization is and what their role in that purpose is and i don't know if that's a failure of leadership in today's day and age or if it's just the fact that leaders just don't care anymore because for the last 40 years society hasn't really been about taking care of the group it's slowly transformed from you know part of the role of corporations was to take care of their employees to now almost all the illness of taking care of themselves has been put on the employee to the point where it's even hard to have a living wage in some parts of the country anymore with what corporations are willing to pay so i don't know kind of what the answer to that is but yeah there's definitely not a lot of missions out there for corporations and the E arts take care of the people in front of you and try to stop people from dying. So that was, that was not too bad of a transition, kind of getting into the emergency room as a nurse, but yeah, it's definitely not out there for everybody.
1: Yeah. And I think that the military, they spent a lot of time training you how to be a soldier, a Marine, a airman, whatever branch you're in. They, they, they invest a lot of money into that. Um, and I find that the transition out is death by PowerPoint. Here's some here's some web links. Good luck. So, <laughs> <laughs> for me, that's um, that's kind of where I see a lot of um, veterans coming out of um, the service and coming to university because they've got their GI Bill. You know, it provides them you know with a a, a living. You know they've got their housing and um, a little bit of an allowance to spend, and so they come to school, but then they get there and sometimes they're like, I, <laughs> nobody's telling me what to do here.
0: <laughs> so, like, here's your so sole they risk to like,
1: Have fun. Figure it out, you know, and right. it it it's it's hard, and also like there's not somebody there looking out for like you always had your commanding officer, whatever hierarchical structure you had in the military or your buddies, to look out for you. In the civilian world, there's not that. Um, And one of the things that I really like to press onto veterans that I know and work with is they need to find a community around them and stay connected with people from their old unit and and get connected with younger uh, groups of veterans that they feel like they've had similar experience with um, so that somebody is always helping them when they need that because you have that in the military someone's always got your back and in the civilian world you also you have to ensure that someone has your back so one of the questions i always ask people is who's there for you at two in the morning when you're having a really really hard time
0: and my answer would be my dog because chances are they're going to be right next to me and trying to lick me and i'm going to be like just get off
1: I, I, I fully support a dog support, so <laughs> I, that is very helpful because dogs will never let you down.
0: No, but my uh, my wife will be there at that point because I'm pretty sure she, regardless of what's going on, will be like, because I told you about it before we got on the um, start of the recording was, yeah, for three days, it's like been dealing with back spasms to the point where like I was getting woken up probably every 20 minutes because my body would decide it was time to move. And my back would say, it wasn't time to move. Yeah. And, you know, then you're spending 20 minutes trying to get back to sleep and 20 minutes later, you're getting woken back up. And I would just finally get up and walk around because I was more comfortable up on my feet than I was trying to lay down. And my wife was like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm like, there's not a whole lot I can do about it right now except just, try and get to the point where my body's so absolutely exhausted, the pain isn't even going to wake me up anymore. And like I said, I'm still going to get off this call and go take a bunch of muscle relaxers so I can try and get the knot that's still in my back to calm down. Luckily, it's not as bad as it has been. It's not at the point where moving a centimeter in the wrong direction isn't making me just like flinch and stop and be like, nope, bad idea, okay, calm down, all right, now I'm good. But um, yeah, it's like there's even with that, though, I can honestly say I've had times in my life where, yeah, was married, still at stuff. But I could honestly say I didn't feel like there would be anybody there for me at two o'clock in the morning when I really needed them. Yeah. Because either they were halfway across the country, they didn't understand, they weren't going to do it, no one understood it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and then. Plus, it's like, who wants to sleep next to the guy who's throwing his shoulder out in the middle of his sleep because of whatever I was dreaming about that day? Um, yeah. But, yeah, yeah, it's, you feel very alone and isolated in a lot of ways, especially if you basically went over, did your four years, did your tours and stuff, came home, and like six months later, then you're completely out of the military.
1: Yeah.
0: And who are you going to turn to? And luckily, I have found friends along my journey that even though I don't talk to them necessarily all the time, all I know i got to do is pick up a phone at this point in my life. And I know I've got somebody I can talk to that's going to be like, yeah, no, man, I'm here for you if you need it. And yeah, we might be across the country right now, but it doesn't stop that fact that we know we got each other's backs. And I think that's the part that is what people really, really need. And it's like, I just tell everybody, go surfing. It'll be fine
1: just yeah. but I think that a lot of times veterans they have someone in their lives that they could connect with but maybe they don't want to ask yeah maybe don't want they to burden somebody they don't <laughs> want to be a burden right that's every single veteran oh, I don't want to be a burden <laughs> yeah. but in reality think about you as a veteran when you help somebody how does it make you feel oh
0: it feels good. But I mean, that's what we're trying to do is help each other out. And so our job is to help others. We're not necessarily, you never get told to help yourself. And so we almost have to learn that after you've taken the uniform off that you've got to also look out for yourself and do things to make sure that you're getting taken care of. Because if you can't take care of yourself, who's supposed to take care of everybody else?
1: But it's also like giving somebody the gift of being there for you so like if if i'm up at two in the morning and i'm having a hard time and i call you my buddy i call you up and i go i'm really struggling i'm having some really bad thoughts i I can't sleep and you are able to help me out i've given you a gift
0: yeah i I guess in a way i don't know if we look at it as a gift it's (laughs) it's kind of like that's what you're supposed to do though it's just right. you're supposed to be there for your buddy and you're supposed to help them out when they need you.
1: So you're giving somebody the opportunity to be there for their buddy. And maybe that's something that somebody needs. You know what I mean? Like if I'm struggling at two in the morning and I call one of my buddies and they're there for me, I've given them purpose.
0: Yeah. No, Um. I see where you're coming from. I don't necessarily know. It's, it's weird because it's one of those it's one of those double-sided things where it's like, oh, no, we want to be there for them. We hope they call us out. We hope when they get in trouble they do it. But it's like, yeah, but would you do that for them? And you're like, uh, I don't know if I'd actually call out or reach out at 2 o'clock in the morning no matter how bad it's going because there's still that part of you where you're like, even though you want to be there for them, you don't want to burden them with what you're going through, especially if you know that they're having a bad time too. Right. And, but but
1: here's what I'm saying. You're not a burden. I can't tell you how many times I've said that in every setting with every veteran. You're not a burden.
0: Yeah, it's but I can see where the vets are coming from where they're like, Yeah, but I still feel like I'm a burden. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just like, No <laughs> it's, it's the conversation we're having right now where they can just go round and round on it. And it's like, I understand exactly what it is you're saying. And mm-hmm. It's a hard concept, I think, for vets to get their head around because you were trained to always be there for the person that really needs it, but you weren't trained to do that emotionally, per se. You were trained to do that in a physical way where it's like, okay, if your buddy's wounded, you're going to take care of them. If they're hurting, you're going to take care of them. If they need help to get across the finish line or get done with whatever we're doing, you're going to help them. And it's weird when it comes to situations between the years, essentially, because I think a lot of us probably came from situations that weren't great to begin with or Mm -hmm. grew up in situations where, you know, like we grew up with parents that had PTSD from their service or whatever it was. And so those conversations never really happened. And so you didn't really know how to deal with it. It was like, yeah, just go rub some dirt on it. You'll be fine. And so you kind of see that pattern coming down to where you get those situations going on and I can honestly say for me it's much easier to deal with somebody coming to me for help than it is for me to go out and try to get my own help yeah yeah regardless of what's going on and there's very few people I think I can reach out to when it comes to that that I know are like going to just going to be like yeah no let's go do it but it's like anybody can come to me and I'll be like yeah no, let's go help you out and do whatever and yeah we can get
1: I think that for me, that's always a struggle to, to allow that safety for someone to reach out for help. Like that's really hard to do. Like I remember when I was at the university, a couple it was probably like eight years ago, you know, when you're getting older, everything's a couple of years, but it was <laughs> many years ago. And uh, one of uh, the guys in our student veteran organization just went missing. Like he just off the grid. We didn't know where he was. And we were all out looking for him, and and it turned out that he just, you know, he got his tent, and he got in his truck, and he just disappeared for a few days to get his head together and came back. But we were worried, sick about him. And it's one of those things where I'm like, why didn't you just call one of us? (laughs) He's like, no, I had to do it on my own.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I was fine. It's okay. Yeah.
1: He clearly was not fine, and he knew he wasn't. Which is why he got in his tent in his truck, and then that's how he fixed things. Yeah, but it's, it, it's
0: funny because it's like, I think just the isolation sometimes and not having to deal with people that don't get it yeah. <laughs> is sometimes exactly what we need is just kind of getting out there, being by yourself, or being mm-hmm. in a place where people can't get a hold of you or can't get her reach chair I don't know. For me, it's like... Finding that outlet to where you have those few hours where you can just kind of zone out, focus on something, and just kind of let your mind go and just be present in that moment is invaluable to have. Because if you don't get those moments, you find yourself ruminating on things that you have absolutely no control over. And then it's yeah, like, the oh, I didn't do that. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. And it's like, uh yeah, there's nothing I can do about any of those things right now. So
1: Yeah, like you've got a little CO in your head yelling at you the whole time. Yeah, I wouldn't go that far. It's more
0: like the whole it's more like your NCO is sitting over you, yelling at you, going, Why didn't you do this? You could have done this, you could and it's like, Roger, I'll do it next time. Yeah,
1: Sorry. when you think about like how that, how that, this is another thing that the military instills on you that if you make a mistake, you're gonna kill somebody. What complacency kills is that what the Marine Corps teaches. So um, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean the healthcare system too can be that way. That you know the moment you get complacent or think that you've got it all under hand is when Murphy likes to raise his ugly head and make everything go to shit in a handbasket, but. Um, but you're constantly reminded. And I think that's one of the reasons why training is so important, especially in the military is that you rehearse it so many times and make your fuck ups there and get corrected on it. It's not that you're not expected to basically not screw up because everybody's human and everybody's going to screw up. And I think that's part of it. It is learning from your mistakes and not repeating the same mistakes going forward. And so that way, yeah. you're constantly improving to the point where a lot of things just become second nature. And so, in, in the my first sergeants said it after we had one exercise, we were dismounting after taking fire in a convoy and creating a firing line and going off and trying to cross the T on the enemy. And um, it did not go well to plan and how it was supposed to go on the first ideation of trying to do it. And at our aar that afternoon when we were finally back at the base camp and training was coming to an end he basically was like he, he was like you guys look like a warm cup of fuck out there today And we were like roger first sir um and it's like never quite heard that expression before but I, we all understood exactly where he was coming from because he was not in a good mood and it's like yeah and you know Every day, it's just that constant grind of getting better. Let's learn what we got to do. And then it's also the constant thing of you got to know your job, the person's above you job and the person's below your job, because if you lose the person below you, you got to train somebody to do that job again. If you lose a person above you, you got to be willing to step into it and take over that position. And yeah, you're constantly. If you find yourself being stagnant and thinking that you've got it all under control, chances are you don't and you just think you do because someone will intentionally go out there and mess up your stuff just to try and make sure they can keep you on your toes. So,
1: yeah. yeah, I, I think that, that needing to do things correctly comes into a, when you come home with that, that's where you get a lot of family conflict because, <laughs> you know, if you're a mom and you've deployed and this is kind of how you've been thinking and being trained, and your kids leave their shoes on the on the stairs, and and no one's taking the garbage out, and like that can go from zero to a million really quickly oh, because yeah. you yeah. know even though no one's gonna die if someone leaves their shoes on the front <laughs> stair, it feels that way, um, and that's like part of that education that has to happen to people that are around the veteran. Like, look, this is what they're experiencing internally because. Of these chain of events and so it's not that they're overreacting they're reacting based on the circumstances they came from
0: yeah no and i i completely understand it and unfortunately i've probably been guilty of that um and i know that you cannot raise your kids as if you are in command of soldiers because it just doesn't work um yeah. it might work, but they're going to, once they're out of your house, you don't know what kind of situations they're going to get themselves into. And it's a really hard aspect to sometimes try and turn that stuff off. Mm-hmm. Um It's also like, how do you not give the best of you at one part and then not have that part for you over here because over here you're, I always called it like, um, it's the fake it till you make it, but it takes on the imposter syndrome aspect of things where you're like, if people only really knew what the hell was going on inside it and inside my head, no one would ever follow me. And so you're constantly over here and it takes so much more effort than it really should in order to pull it off on one side that when you get over to the other side of your life, you're completely exhausted or you just don't know how to carry it over because you find yourself like faking it in one spot. And then you're like, oh, I'll lean into it over here. And then it's like, you kind of lose your self identity in some ways. But uh yeah, that's going down my own little personal rabbit hole right there of things I've gone to. But me and um my last commander, it's like when we were working together and I was the acting first sergeant for the company, we were looking at each other and it's like, everyone – looks at it and sees this nice big bright shiny mirror but if they looked behind it they'd see all the cracks that aren't showing up yet and the bubble gum and the duct tape that's holding it all together right now and I think a lot of times it's just how the military operates unfortunately is that you're holding things together with duct tape and bubble gum because you still got stuff you got to do but you're not necessarily getting the nice new things or the trained up people to help you do all those things so you're just kind of winging it and hoping to God that it works out. And if it's not working out, trying to figure out another way to make it work.
1: Yeah. And you're kind of like that duck that looks very smoothly moving across the water, but the feet are paddling, paddling underneath.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely the, the chaos theory of, yeah, you can control what you can control, but depending on the level that you're at, there's not a lot you're in control of. And so, yeah, you just do the best you can i think that's where having different leaders that and creating a culture within your unit as best you can and having a clear expectation of what's expected from people obviously yeah. will help fill those gaps because too often it's like if you've got a poor leader and things are being held together by duct tape and bubble gum it's there's a pretty good chance that it's going to all come crashing down. But if you've got some good leaders above you and it's all being held together with duct tape and bubble gum, there's a pretty good chance that people are going to find ways to come up with the solutions you need to make situations happen and make sure the mission gets completed. And I think that's kind of a weird dichotomy in today's world is that I can say it because I'm in middle management in one aspect of things and it's like everything gets put on the middle manager, all the responsibility, all the blame, all the other stuff. And it's like, you can't blame everybody below you if you're in charge of it, because ultimately you're supposed to be the ultimate person in charge of whatever is happening in that one area. Mm -hmm. And so I think the accountability, if you're going to hold people accountable, you have to be able to hold yourself accountable. And when you screw up, you'd be surprised how well they can go over when you look at people and be like, Hey, I'm sorry. I fucked up today. Yeah. And you're honest and fortright with them and be like, yeah, no, that shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have gone that way. It did. We're going to figure out a way that we can fix it. And we're going to figure it out together because that's what we need to do right now. And, uh, and I
1: think people yeah. learn that, that leadership style from the military, because if you think about it, a lot of people come from their parents' house to uncle sam's house <laughs> and so if you're if you're blessed with a really good um leadership group around you then you can learn how to have that sort of um leadership style when you come back to the civilian world
0: yeah no and i think it's also the opposite is true especially for young officers as ncos i think it's a little different because we're we kind of come up to the ranks and then you got the E4 mafia, as we affectionately called it in the army, which was none of the responsibility. N- nothing was ever truly your fault. Cause it always went on the E5 that was in charge of you. And so you could kind of shirk your duty if you really, really wanted to, but if you had good sergeants above you, they were taking you under your wing. They were making sure that you were being trained up properly and having the opportunities to be put into leadership situations where you were responsible for stuff and accountable, but they were basically still accountable for what was actually going on. But I think for officers, it's a real tight window because their game is much more political inside the military. And if they get stuck underneath a poor officer, that's a poor leader, right above them, they have no choice but to play the game because that officer is writing their review from day one, Mm -hmm. essentially. And (laughs) if they don't play the game, their career can get ended by someone that isn't a good leader to begin with. And so it's a real kind of double-edged sword. And a lot of times there's a lot of hoops, depending on what branch their officer's in, as to what they have to do in order to make that next rank up. Because for officers, especially from the very get-go, it's up or out. We're enlisted, you've kind of got that runway where you can kind of learn, see what it is you want to do. And some people get up there really fast, which I think isn't necessarily good. Other people can get up there really quick and it's because they were really good at what they were doing. But I think every leader, good and bad, has something that they can teach you. If you understand what is a good leader versus what is a bad leader and understand what kind of leader you're working for, Because I don't think that's a differentiation that most people get a chance to make today. Because for some reason, no has become a bad word in American society, and I don't know why that is.
1: I guess nobody really likes no. (laughs)
0: Well, no, but I mean, sometimes you need to hear it as a leader because you're asking something that isn't possible for your subordinates. And if they go, oh, yeah, we can make that happen. The only thing they're doing is they're sitting them up for failure or they're putting unrealistic expectations on the people that they're in charge of. And that's not good for anybody. Yeah. So I don't know. There's my little leadership philosophy that the whole thing of like, whatever happened to like leading from the front and being the one that showed everybody what it is you needed to do and how it needed to get done. But you don't really see that too, too much today anymore. Yeah. And for those of you that are in charge in the Army, Sergeant Major of the Army, that doesn't mean someone that can run a sub-12-minute two-mile. That just means they can run fast. Doesn't mean they (laughs) have any common sense.
1: Everybody's got their own measuring stick.
0: Well, no, the problem was that was the thing. It's like, oh, you need to get a 290 on the PT test or you can't go to the board. And it's like some people are never going to score a 290 on the PT test. It doesn't mean they're going to be a poor leader. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: It just means, hey, they can't run a sub-12 minute, two mile. I,
1: I always wonder, um, you were able to make the transition in a, a basically a similar field um, than you were in the military. And I I struggle with um, the the guys I work with coming from the infantry, a lot, a lot of times my job is to look at their resumes and then un them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm like, no, civilian, civilian hire, they're not gonna, they don't care that you're proficient in this many different types of, of weapons. <laughs> so it, it's hard when you come from an MOS that is not reflected in that many occupations in the civilian world. Do you have any recommendations for, for people coming from MOS's?
0: Um, I have, um, like, especially when we were going to like NCOERs with some of my sergeants that it was their first time, like going through the process and having to see it. And I go, and you would always be like, okay, what are your bullet points that you want to give me? Yada, 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 and I'd sit down with them and they'd be like, uh, ran PT for such and such people. And you'd be like, okay, I did PT with 10 people and I had eight of those 10 pass their PT test. And it's okay. It's not necessarily what you did, but how can you translate that to where when it looks like you put it on paper, it is as good and looks as good as you possibly can because going, I can do this really, really well does not translate in the infantry speak. But essentially your job in the infantry is to be like, pick up heavy thing here, put everything down here and bad guy over there. I shoot bad guy. Mm. That's kind of the job description. There's a lot of more intricacy that goes into it, but it's like able to handle high pressure situations would be a good thing <laughs> to put on under austere environments with um, little to no, um, not little to no, but like often with um, short supplies and limited equipment. Mm-hmm. and for anybody that's been in the field that is the field yeah um able to come up with solutions on the fly and adapt to changing situations quickly
1: yeah
0: able to communicate even um effectively in difficult situations and in times of great distress or even life and death because that those are all things that your average infantry NCO are going to know how to do. Mm -hmm. It's not, and it's like able to maintain equipment and oversee however many personnel and have them maintain equipment with a 0% failure rate. Because if your guns fire and you're doing your job and in the desert, that's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Especially Mm with the M4s, AK-47 a little easier, M4, not so much. Um, But there's a lot of different ways that you can word what it is that you said. And there are very, very intelligent individuals in the infantry. But there's also a lot of stupid shit that happens in the infantry because it's the infantry. And I think that's one of the things that makes the infantry fun for the infantry guys is that, yeah, you can go out, you work hard, but they also play hard. And it's kind of that old, almost 1950s, 1960s style of. I'm going to go to my job. I'm going to bust ass. But when it's time when work's done and it's time to have fun, I'm also going to go have as much fun as I humanly possibly can until it's time to go back to work. And that's essentially how the infantry works. And if you've got that kind of mentality in a lot of what you do, a lot of people don't know essentially how to handle it because you're, you're trying to do your absolute best all the time. And in the civilian world, what you find is that if you're really good at doing that, chances are people are going to start giving you their work and you're going to be doing a lot more work than what you should be doing. And instead of having the time and the energy to try and figure out how you can move yourself up the ladder or doing whatever else, you end up having an unreal expectation put on you in the civilian world of this is what you're able to meet. And that becomes the standard for you, whereas your job description has you doing stuff at A lower level but you're taking on so much more and i think that's another problem that a lot of vets run into is that sometimes you're just in a situation where it's like the more challenging the situation the better you'll do and if the situation isn't challenging you get bored and you get off track and you're like "Eh, whatever right because you you've got that aspect to you too where if you you it's not deemed important or what's going on you can Essentially, if there's not a lot of buy-in, like if they don't know the purpose of what it is they're doing, uh, vets will check out in a heartbeat, too, because there is no purpose to what they're doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I've been told that universities are stupid. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I can understand that in some way. Yes.
1: I'm like, thanks.
0: <laughs> but on the bright side, they just... Got rid of, I don't know how many billions of dollars of student debt. So that's going to start coming through the next few weeks, which I think is very, very helpful to a lot of people in society because they're paying for degrees that have no practical purpose. And I think that's one of the things where has changed over the last 40 years that it didn't used to be is that it used to be like graduate from high school, you can get a job that's going to be able to take care of you. You graduate from college, you're going to be able to get a really good paying job that's going to take care of you and your family. And now it's like, now you got to graduate from college just to get the job that might take care of you. And chances are, unless you have an advanced degree or you spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and go through like med school or something like that, you're not coming out. And even then, it's like with residency and stuff like that, I don't think people realize doctors aren't making big bucks coming out of medical school, they're lucky if a lot of times there's not four or five them living in an apartment so they can all pay their student loans. Yeah,
1: you know, one of the things that I've seen is um, NCOs have so much responsibility in the military, and then when they come out, they can't find a job that's commensurate to that level of responsibility because they don't know how to translate or the civilian world doesn't know how to translate what they've done. And so it's disheartening for them to come to this healing world and find jobs that are just not as stimulating and also have the same level of responsibility that they're actually capable of doing. And that's really frustrating for people.
0: Oh yeah. No. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny cause it's like, I was looking it up and this is way back in the day. So this is God. oh eight, oh nine. 809. And there was talk about changing the pay scale for especially the senior NCOs, so like the E78E9s, because the pay scale was definitely not reflective of the amount of responsibility that they had. And it was, I looked it up and it was a captain with four years in the military was making two hundred dollars less than a sergeant major with 23 years in. Yeah. And the thing was, well, that captain's in charge of a company. I'm like, there's a pretty good chance that Sergeant Major is the top NCO in an entire brigade, battalion, division. He's not getting any more. It's like he'll get his little two year thing. But if you looked at it within that next two year bump, that captain was always going to be making more than that Sergeant Major. Yeah. And you can't tell me a captain in charge of a 68 person platoon or company has the same responsibility and is responsible for the same amount of stuff as that sergeant major that's in charge of possibly 10,000 enlisted troops in his division.
1: Yeah.
0: And yeah, it's, it's a weird dichotomy of what was expected. And it's like, they never got out of the fact that in order to get to be a senior NCO, most of the times now you have to have a college degree, if not a master's and that you've got a, sometimes a higher level of education than the officers that you are coaching and mentoring. Because if you're a platoon sergeant, your job is to take your lieutenant that's behind you. That's brand new out of ROTC or wherever they're at. Hope to God, they're not an asshole and then train them as to what it is that they should be doing when it comes to running that platoon. And try to set them up for success as much as possible so that the platoon is successful. It looks good for them. And they're understanding what it is that the role of the NCO is underneath them. So they understand that they can, they're supposed to lean on that NCO for the rest of their career because a lot of times they've got a counterpart that's always going to be there with them and it doesn't always happen. And I think the civilian world also looks and it goes, Oh, well you were an officer in charge of all this. And it's like, yeah, but what they don't realize they might've been in charge of it all. But chances are they had an NCO that was making most of it happen. It wasn't the officer going out there. They were like, oh, well, we needed this to happen. We need this to happen. We need this to happen. And you had usually an NCO that was like, roger, sir, roger, ma'am. And they'd move out the door. And they were the ones actually facilitating what needed to get done in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's it's weird because it doesn't translate over. They're like, oh, well, you weren't actually in charge of anything. It's like, um... You can tell me that because there was somebody else that technically was, but it doesn't mean that they were actually doing the work or doing the management or doing anything else, depending on the situation. If you've got yeah. a good working situation up there, you work in tandem with somebody and the two of you are basically doing whatever you can to ensure the success of the company, because you know, it's not about you. It's about what the individuals below you do, because your success rises and falls with, what they choose to do for you. And that's true. I think that's a lesson that isn't understood in a lot of today's society. Mm -hmm. People like to think, oh, well, I'm in charge, so I can say whatever I want to and do whatever I want to. And it's like, no, you're in charge. You have a responsibility to put the people below you in the best position they possibly can in order to secure your success. And if you don't, you're just setting everybody up, including yourself for failure. Yeah. And a lot of times they're like, oh, well, that doesn't look like it's something I want to do. And it's like. You're looking at the situation from the wrong perspective, if you're looking at stuff that way, a lot of times it seems like. But that's why I'm stuck in perpetual medical management, even though I've got the same qualifications as the individual that's running my hospital right now.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that frustration is pretty universal. And I I think. A lot of that comes from the fact that we have a warrior class and that there's people that understand the military, have been in the military, their family's been in the military. And then there's every, there's the vast majority of people that don't, they don't understand.
0: No, that's, that's very true. And I think the, the difference is too, is that the military has changed in the last 40 years to where the people that are in there doing it as a career, it's, they are highly skilled in whatever it is that they're doing because they're, they're trainers. They understand leadership. They understand different aspects of things and everybody's got their own personal style. But a lot of times you have to be so well-rounded at everything in order to advance up the chain that anybody that makes it up there usually has a pretty good head on their shoulders. There are exceptions, but I mean, it's not, even in the military today, you can't just look at people and go, because I said so, and expect that to work as a motivation to get people to get the job done. Whereas 30 years ago, because I said so, was a very valid reason to get people to get stuff done.
1: Yeah. And, you know, someone in the civilian world doesn't know the difference between an E4 and an E8. Nope.
0: They don't. They're like, oh, well, you were in the military? And I'm like, uh there's... there's, there's,
1: there's <laughs> right. Yeah. Like, it's just this one thing in the military what did you do in the military and
0: i'm like well i started off as a medic i ended my career herding cats and they were like what i'm like i'm like when you've got a platoon of like 69 people because our company was absolutely ridiculous i think it was this was in the reserves at the time what was it there was 270 some odd people in our company Hmm. and i had a 69 person platoon. As a platoon sergeant. Wow. And they're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm hurting cats. And they're like, why? And I'm like, because I had I had officers that somehow I was supposed to be in charge of. I'm like, it doesn't work this way, folks. You're like, well, so-and-so was like, you need to cancel. I'm like, uh, it doesn't work that way. NCOs can't cancel officers. Somebody can go out. I can be like, hey, please don't be late again, ma'am. But I can't actually do anything about it because that's not the way the Army
1: works. I was an embedded clinician uh, in Connecticut. Um, they have an embedded clinician program where you are placed um, with um, a unit. Um, so I was with a company, and I would go during their uh, drill weekends and meet with. It was infantry, so I met with the guys and you know hung out with the, the the drill shed, cleaning weapons with them, and um, and that you know the the guard has a different sort of ethos that it is it is like herding cats because you know it'd be like oh it's uh it's Saturday at 10 where's so-and-so and (laughs) And where's private so-and-so and And somebody might have to go get into a vehicle and go pick them up
0: (laughs) or you're calling uh depending on where they lived and how far they had to drive you're calling the local county sheriff to do health and welfare checks on them to make sure that they're even alive Mm -hmm. um yeah or people are getting into accidents on their way to drill or you're releasing people early because of weather conditions so they can actually get home and it was definitely a different mindset and like I had one person ask me and it was like uh I was a staff sergeant at the time and it was another staff sergeant he looks at me he's like so what are the reserves like he's like I've been thinking about coming off active duty and kind of going in the reserve to finish up my career and I'm like Well, you know how like you get the whole month to have all that mandatory stuff done? And he's like, yeah, they go cram all of that into 48 hours. And (laughs) don't expect anybody to answer you outside of those 48 hours. And he's like, what? And I went, that's the reserves. And he's like, what do you mean? I go, because you only have command and control for those 48 hours. There is no like, hey, you're 40 pounds overweight. You need to go run on your time off. You can't do that. You can't force anybody to exercise or do anything. You're just like all right, nope, here we go. It's like they're doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. It's like, yeah. Yeah. They did just call up, I think it was 3,000 IRR troops, so that's probably going to be really, really interesting, and they're starting to activate National Guard and reserves again for active duty um, supplementation because of all the stuff going on in Eastern Europe. Mm. So we'll see how that goes because that's going to be fun. Yeah. But
1: well, I appreciate you having me come in today and talk about my research because um, it's important for me to be an ambassador <laughs> <laughs> between the two worlds. Um, and I I spend a lot of time training civilian social workers on um, veteranness and and veteran cultures and and how to um, interact with veterans in the clinical space because I think you know if you can't if you don't have a good experience with the VA or you can't get into the VA and you have to go see a, a civilian, you don't want to spend half your time trying to explain to them the world you come from and the world you're living in. So, um, so I, I take pride in, in um, helping civilians understand this world that I learned through the eyes of, of veterans and military personnel. So it's an honor for me to do the work I'm doing and I appreciate you, taking the time to bringing me into your space. Oh,
0: no, I, I think um, anybody that's doing what they can to help veterans out in any way, shape or form, or even getting the research out there, because I mean, right now, the biggest epidemic we're facing is the 22 a day that are committing suicide. And it's funny, because it's like, if you're tuned into the news in any way, shape or form, even the highlights, it's like, once the burn pit thing got passed, it's kind of like, oh, now well, the veterans got everything they need with the PACT Act and stuff like that. It's like, uh no, we're still killing ourselves at a rate that is what forty times higher than the next closest demographic in the United States or something like that. It's something unreal yeah. and it's not a large population. So it's we're there's a lot of stuff going out there and it's universal i mean it's been going on there's a what was it a, it was a thing on amazon i think it was it was called war torn 1865 till 2010 i think is what it covered it was basically talking about ptsd being described and people writing letters home during the civil war and moving on through there and it's like this has been around for a long time and people have been dealing with it and committing suicide for hundreds of years and it's I just don't see a reason why it is acceptable in a country that is as rich as it is. its that has been so much money to send people to war that we do not do the absolute utmost we possibly can to make sure that they are getting absolutely everything they need to reintegrate into society once they've gotten done fighting those wars. Yeah,
1: and I really see that as not a they, but a us. And I think that it it's it's. I enjoy the freedoms that have been provided for me, to me, by people that sign their name on the line. And so my, I have an obligation to people that are of the warrior class, of people that have done the work that I could not and, and did not do. Um, so I think everybody who is listening this or is connected to someone in the veteran community or military community, is obligated to, to do something. All of us need to not turn a blind eye to to the suffering or the struggles of another person.
0: Yeah, no, and I wholeheartedly agree with you. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. I feel like I did most of the talking in some parts, but um, that's fine. Anybody that knows me would probably call me a blabbermouth and a big mouth anyway and <laughs> says I never showed up. So um Either that or they just call me an asshole. It's, it's one or the other. But um, no, it was an absolute pleasure. I would love to have you back again and let figure out what your research is doing, how it's helping and where it's going, because I think anything that's kind of dealing with mental health and especially with the veteran community, I am always willing to get updates on and come back in. And hopefully you enjoyed yourself. And I wasn't so bad of a host that you would not ever want to come back and do this again. So
1: I, I will come back again. <laughs>
0: No, it was an absolute pleasure. I don't want to hold you up any longer because I know you're on a different coast than I am. So it's starting to get late for you. And um, thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you for so much for agreeing to do the podcast and uh, just keep up the fantastic work and just keep helping you know, anybody that comes in front of you. Because I know you said you've had people that will show up, talk to you, and then you're like, here's my number, do give me a call. And then that was it. It's like, that was the only time that, ever actually mentioned anything about what they were going through and i think that that unfortunately is a trait way too many veterans have that we we're always willing to help somebody else out but we never really want to talk about what's going on with us so but
1: so everyone everyone should do themselves a favor and ask someone to be kind to them yeah if you need help do somebody a favor and let them do you a favor
0: yeah i will Put that forward, I think uh I'm going to start recording and putting out the, there was a thing called the, the Spartan Promise or the Spartan something. Pledge. Yeah, the Spartan Pledge. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. I can't remember the gentleman that put it out, but essentially it's a promise to not commit suicide until you've had a chance to actually speak to one of your battle your buddies or you reach out and talk to somebody, and then yeah. also just to find a purpose, helping you know, your brothers and sisters out there and do what you can. And I think I didn't know about it when I started all this up, but I think that that is true, is that veterans need to become the leaders in looking out for other veterans because less than 30% of the people at the VA are veterans, and which kind of seems weird to me. I would think that that would be the place most vets would go to, but even there, not a lot of people are vets, and you'll see a different camaraderie amongst the people that are versus the ones that aren't so but again thank you so much i don't want to hold you up any longer um i will reach out again here shortly and just kind of see how you're doing and hopefully we can have another conversation like this where i'm not monopolizing half the things that are being said
1: <laughs> i enjoy the time thank you so much well,
0: thank you have a wonderful evening
1: thanks you too